I love Christmas. And one of the things that we do at our house is we decorate really, really big. Now, I say we. Um, if my wife was here, she would interpret it. She decorates really, really big. But the reason my wife decorates it really, really big and not we is because decorating in our house has kind of become complicated over the years. Um, when Denise and I first got married 30 years ago, we got married in October. And so our first Christmas together was only like three months later. And, and it was one of those like, you're still really in love. Like we're still really in love now. But back then we would like hang up a Christmas ornament and we'd kiss one another and we'd hang up another one, kiss one another. We didn't have that many ornaments to hang up and I was not smart enough at that point or maybe I was just clueless enough that I never disagreed with where she wanted to hang them but the next year we had more decorations because we went the day after Christmas to all the Christmas sales and we just bought up everything that was on sale and so by the time we got to our second Christmas we had six or seven totes now we're 20 30 years into it and we've got tote after tote after tote of decorations there's been times that we've had like eight Christmas trees in our house Denise loves it and so um, when it goes time to decorate, I've learned quickly there's two ways to decorate in our house. And I can share this story a little bit more free than I could the first service because she attended the first service. So you get the real version right here. There are two ways to decorate Christmas at our house. There is Denise's way and the wrong way. And I learned that really, really quick. And so we, we, we started like in our, in our Christmas, in our marriage and Christmas, sometimes it would get tense around decorating time because I was foolish enough to actually have an opinion on how and where we should put things. And so we would have these tensions and we'd have these spats, we'd have these um, discussions in there. But Christmas decorating at the Smith house just gets really, really complicated. Now, what I love at this moment, because I'm looking at your faces, I see every woman going, amen, amen, amen. And I see every man going, please pray for me, please pray for me, please pray for me. You understand what I'm talking about. But here's the deal. The complication of Christmas is not just decorating. I don't know if you've had this problem already. Denise and I have looked at December calendar, and we're like, we got something this month, this night, we have something this night, and we're looking at the calendar, and our Christmas calendar for December is already complicated. There's one point we've got somebody coming in to stay with us. On the day they're leaving, somebody else is coming in. We barely have time to wash the sheets on those beds before the next next company comes. If I didn't like them so much, I wouldn't even wash the sheets before the next people got there. But I do like those people. So, so it's just the calendar is complicated. Um, the, the, the present buying is complicated. Like what's your budget? How much can you spend? We spent this much on this grandchild. How much did you spend on this grandchild? You spent this much. Here's the complication Denise and I got to that when our kids were young. We would set a budget to how much we were going to buy for them for Christmas. If we found something on sale, I would use the non-sale price to consider the budget. She would use the sale price to consider the budget. So all of a sudden, we'd get to the close to Christmas. She's like, we got 50 more dollars that we can spend on our son. And I'd add everything up, but I was using the non-sale price. You with me? I think that's how Jesus would. That's why I did it that way. Anyway, so it gets really complicated when it comes to all this Christmas stuff. I sometimes wonder if God looks down at all of our Christmas festivities, if God looks down at all of our Christmas preparations, and he goes, it could be a lot simpler. I wonder if he looks down going, that's why I limited the first Christmas to a couple of donkeys, Mary, Joseph, a manger, and some shepherds, because I didn't want to overcomplicate it. He just is going, it could be simpler. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against all the stuff at Christmas. In fact, it helps me get into the spirit of Christmas. But there is, in the lack of simplicity, sometimes I think we lose some of the story of the Savior.
because we're so complicated in everything else we're doing. So here's what we're going to do over the Advent series here at South Sub Church. I will not preach against all the other stuff, but when we come here on a Sunday morning, I want us to focus on the simplicity of the story. In fact, here's what we're going to do. Rather than me writing a sermon every Sunday that we come to an Advent, and it's got three points in illustration and two more points over here like most sermons do, it's just going to be this telling of the story. And we're going to choose a different character of the Christmas story each week, and we're just going to together remember and share the story together and find the simplicity of what God was doing through his son Jesus. So the story that I want to share with you today is actually the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. If you remember Elizabeth and Zechariah, they're actually not part of the Jesus story, but they are part of the Jesus story because Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus. And he would, as he would grow, he would foretell the coming of Jesus' ministry. And so they were intertwined in there within that Christmas story. And that's the part I want us to look at today. We're going to look at um, Zach, or first Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 5. And here's what it says in verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. And they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old." How would you like somebody to write a story about you? And 2,000 years later, what is the one description they remember? And they were very old. Would you look at the person to you and say, no, we'll skip that one, this one, okay? We won't go there today. I remember reading this and hearing this story for the very first time when I was like probably second or third grade and we were sitting in Sunday school class and my teacher was reading the story to us. First time I'd really heard it in Sunday school like that. And she got to the point and they were very old. And as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, I thought, wow, they're probably like 30 or 35 years old. They had to be really old. And then when I got to be 30 or 35 years old and my kids were in the second, third grade and I'm reading the story to them, I'm looking at them going, wow, they were old. They were probably like 50 or 55 years old. And now that I'm in a stage in my life that I'm closer to 60 than I am 50. And I think, how old were they? And I'm thinking, wow, they're like 80 years old probably. And some of you, as soon as I say that, are ready to come up here and just slap me upside my head and say, that is not old. So old is all relative. We don't know how old they were, but the Bible says they were old. There are some theologians that think they were anywhere from 60 to 80 years old, but they were old. But there's another description that the scripture doesn't come out and say exactly, but I think this is a very fair description about them. If you were to talk to any one of their neighbors, Zachariah and Elizabeth, or talk to some of their, their friends or family members, I think many of those around them would have said to describe their life, their life seemed to be hopeless. And here's why I use that word hopeless. Again, the Bible doesn't use that word as we read about it there in that first chapter of Luke. But the reason I say hopeless, they had some really negative things going on in their lives at that time. The Bible did say this, that they were in the time of Herod. Now remember, Herod was assigned to them as their ruler by the Roman government. At this time, the Jewish people were run, their nation was run, and, and their country was run by the Romans. And so the Romans would send over their own political personnel to take care of them. 
But Herod's goal in them was not to, goal in life was not to really take care of the Jewish people. He wanted to set himself up politically. He wanted to make things right. He wanted to make things in Rome look like he was really doing a good job that he could possibly be um, put up to a higher position. And so he was there for his own self and not them. It was a political climate where people, those in charge, were looking about what could get them in a better place than what the people they were taking care of. It was a political climate that had tension involved in it. There was a political climate that the people that, that Elizabeth and Zachariah and the other Jewish people were living in, it was just a political climate that had unrest in it. There was a battling for power. And I thought, how can I help you help, help illustrate so you can really understand what that kind of political climate is like? And then I looked into the news, I'm going, I think you understand it, okay? It was very similar to what we have today. But it wasn't just the political climate that made their life seem a little bit hopeless. At the same time, the priesthood that, that, that Zachariah was a part of, it was becoming more and more and more, can we just say, ungodly. That many of the priests, they are all the priests had that job because that was the lineage of their family, but they weren't following that lineage to be holy and honor God. They were really setting it up almost their own little political domain too. And so here was Zechariah that would go to work every day as a priest, but he was entering into an ungodly environment that was supposed to be a godly environment. So that might have made it feel a little hopeless, but it got worse than that. The Bible lets us know this, that, that Elizabeth was without child. Now, again, we don't know exactly how old she was. Was she 40, 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years old? But she had lived her whole married life without a child. And if you're here in this room as a wife or even as a husband with a wife and family and you struggle to get pregnant, you know the feeling of that. But I think it was even worse back in those days. Because back in those days, 2,000 years ago, a woman's worth was found in her giving children to her husband. In fact, legally, Zachariah could have divorced Elizabeth anytime he wanted to because she wasn't fulfilling her wifely duty of giving ch children to him. And so when she walked through the marketplace, people would look at her going, oh my gosh, there's the girl. She can't give her husband a, ch a child. What's wrong with her? In fact, the Jewish people would layer on top of that a spirituality, and they would think that maybe she must have had some kind of big sin in her life. She had done something wrong to make God angry, and therefore that's the reason she couldn't get pregnant. And so can you imagine if you're Elizabeth and you're Zachariah and you're walking with her and you go to the market and ladies just kind of step away from you when you're going down the aisle. And so this hopelessness, hopelessness carried over in their own personal life like that. But I'll give you another reason why it was probably feeling hopeless to them. The Bible lets us know at this moment, this season of life of Zachariah and Elizabeth, that God had not spoken in over 400 years that no prophet had given any new revelation of God. We can assume from that that there was no angel visitation. There was no visions that God had given people. God had just become silent for 400 years. Doesn't mean God had left them. He just hadn't spoken. You ever been in that situation before? That you so want God to speak to you. You so want to feel God. You so want to sense God. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason he's just started being quiet in your life. And you reach out and you pray, but it feels like your prayers just hit the ceiling of the house. And you open your Bible and you read your Bible, but it's just a bunch of words and not God's words on a piece of paper. And you just feel like he's not there. Again, doesn't mean he's not there, but you feel like he's not there. He's not listening to you. 
That's the environment that the Jewish nation, but Elizabeth and Zachariah specifically, they were living in, and the nation had been living in that environment for 400 years. You see what I'm talking about? Their life seemed, appeared to be a little hopeless. It seemed to be one of those things like, man, why, why do you even keep living? Why even keep breathing? Because there's nothing going right in our lives. And so that was the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But it didn't end there. I want to tell you the rest of the story. And you go home and read it there in that first chapter of Luke. But the Bible lets us know as a priest on this particular day that we pick up in Luke chapter 1. On this particular day that Zechariah was assigned to go into the, to the holy place within the temple. And only one, one priest ever so often would be allowed to go in there. And he was chosen to do it. And his job was to go offer incense to God for the people. And so while his life might have seemed hopeless... At least on this one particular day, something could happen because he got chosen to go in and burn the incense for all the people, for the prayers up to God. And the Bible says on this particular day, he walked in, he would have put his robe on like all priests. There would have been a, a ritual that he would have went through to be, even be able to go into this holy place within the temple. And he would have taken his lighters and his candles and got ready and he would have went in there. And as he was lighting the different incenses, the different candles, the Bible says he had an angel appear to him. So you can imagine, like you can't talk to your father to know what it was like for an angel to appear to you because one hadn't appeared for over 400 years. And so he's back there and he's in this, this, this holy place within the temple. Think of it like a small closet, maybe a small room. He's in there by himself and there's this angel. The Bible says he was afraid. Like, yes, he might have been old, but afraid might have been the best description of him at that moment. I think I would have been also. And the angel looks at him and says, I am the angel Gabriel. Do not be afraid. For the prayer that you've been praying is now being answered by God. Your wife will have a baby. Now, time out there for a second. Sometimes I read scripture and I kind of wonder like what the pages don't tell us. And we don't have the answer and one day we might get to heaven and find out. But I think to myself when I read that, the prayer that you've been praying, you'll have a baby. Was that the prayer that he prayed that morning? Like, let's just assume he's 70 years old. Like, that's a pretty, like... Big prayer to pray when you're 70 years old that my wife would get pregnant. Was he still hanging on to it? Or was this the prayer that he prayed 30 or 40 years ago and he finally gave up giving, praying that particular prayer? So we don't know the timing of Zachariah's prayer. But the angel appears going, hey, do not be afraid because God's going to answer your prayer. Your wife is going to become pregnant. And the Bible lets us know this. The Zechariah looked at the angel going, hang on, time out. Have you not checked my birth certificate? <laughs> Have you not checked my age? Do you not know how my body's working right now, how my wife's body's working right now? We're not having kids. It's impossible. You needed to show up 30 or 40 years earlier for this to happen. And at that point, the angel looks at him. And kind of in my understanding, the angel looked at him and said, Really? I just came from the very presence of an almighty holy God with this message before you, and you're going to doubt me? And the angel looks at him and says, because of your doubt, because of your lack of belief, you will not be able to speak until the child is born. And at that moment, Zechariah just goes voiceless. Now, the angel gives this message Zachariah's trying to get over his fear, his astonishment, his surprise, all the emotions that go with that. And he still has a duty to do within, the, within this holy place, within the temple. 
And the Bible lets us know after a while he finished his duties and he walked out. And what he encountered was a group of people because it would have been very normal while the priest was in there lighting the incense and the candles, people would have been outside the holy place and they would have been praying. And so he probably took longer than normal because he had this interaction with the angel plus the normal duties he had to do and the routines that he had to do. And so he gets out and they're going, Zachariah, Zachariah, where have you been? I mean, we've been out here. We didn't know what happened to you. And he goes to speak. But there are no words that come out because the angel had looked at him and said, because of your lack of belief, you're not going to be able to talk. And he looks at him and he begins to just try to make actions and motions and communicate the best he could. It's not like he could pick up his iPhone and just text him real quick what had happened. They didn't have iPhones back then, but he finally communicates and they understand that he had seen a vision that he had had an encounter with the holy God, one that no one had had for over 400 years. He couldn't communicate what it was, but they knew something had taken place in that holy place. And so they were all excited, but didn't know what they were excited about. And it's interesting, the Bible says this, if you go back and just read it in detail, the Bible says this, that for the next week he had to continue his duties in the temple. He could not go home to tell Elizabeth what had happened. So he's got this big news, she's going to be pregnant, his wife is 70 years old, however old she is, and he's got to tell her, but he can't. But he's got, he's an, he has another week's worth of duties to do within this holy place. And so after a week he finally goes home and he tries to communicate with her without a voice. He tries to communicate to her without words coming off his lips of his mouth to say, God has answered our prayer. That we have prayed and we have waited and we've waited and we prayed and we waited some more and we prayed and we waited and we waited some more. And God has answered our prayer. You're going to have a baby. Don't you wish you could have been in that living room when he had that conversation? She probably looked at him and said, are you crazy and don't you think about touching me? Okay. I mean, I just think this, like this is not, it's just not making sense. But lo and behold, the scripture says this, she turns up pregnant and she carries that child. And the scripture goes on to say nine months later, she's ready to give birth to this child. By this moment, the whole community is excited about it. They may not understand exactly what God is doing in and through her with this child who will be John the Baptist. They're just excited that she's having a baby. Because remember, this is the same community that had shunned her when she would walk into the marketplace because she couldn't have a child. And now she is a woman of age, and she is pregnant. And so the whole town is excited. And she has this baby. The word spread throughout the town, throughout the village, throughout the community that Elizabeth had her baby. Elizabeth had her baby. This is really great. And so on the eighth day after the child was born... As custom, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they bring the child into the temple. And this is the moment that is customary for every family. As boys, they're going to circumcise the boy, and they're going to name the child at that time. And so they bring the child into the, in, in, into the temple. And somebody looks at Mary and says, what are you going to name him? Remember, they can't ask uh, Zachariah because he can't speak yet. And they said, what are you going to name the child? And she looks at him and says, we're going to name him John. And the crowd looks at her and goes, well, John, you can't name John. I mean, Zachariah, he should be a junior, not a John, because Zachariah, and you have waited so long, how, and you don't even have a John in your family. This is not right. And so they look at Zachariah going, Zachariah, what are you going to name him? And the name John came from the angel. And Zachariah opened his mouth for the first time, and words came out of his mouth. And he said, we will name the child John. 
And so the crowd just kind of gathers around, and they're just going, God must do something really big through this child because of everything that had taken place. But it was in this moment in the temple that in this moment that they're standing before all the people that Zechariah wants to give his prophecy over the child but to the people. And I want to read for you the prophecy that he gave at this moment. Now, to really grasp this, again, you have to put yourself in the temple. You've got to put yourself in this crowd that's seeing a 60, 70, 80-year-old couple give birth to a child. You have to know that the father didn't speak for nine months. So there's just this, this build-up positive tension that is sitting in the room when Zechariah says this. And these are the words of Zechariah in the book of Luke chapter 1. He said, praise the Lord in verse 68, if you go back and read it, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and he has redeemed his people. And then he goes on to say, he has sent us a mighty Savior. I think at this moment people went, whoa, 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 you're supposed to be giving a prophecy or talking about your son, bless your son, but this is not about your son, this is about us as a nation. Because what's taking place is Zechariah understands that God's promises... The promises that he made hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. He understands this, that God's love that has been loving the nation of Israel for hundreds and thousands of years. While all of his community might have looked and said, your life is hopeless, Zachariah. Your life is hopeless, Elizabeth. You don't have much going for you. I believe this, that the couple held on to hope. And they held on to hope because they knew of God's love and they knew of God's promises. And Zechariah is prophesying not about John, his little infant son at this moment. He's prophesying about the Messiah that will be coming soon. And he says, he has sent us, talking about God, God has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of the servant David, just as he promised to his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant. The covenant swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. And then he goes on to say, we have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear. In holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And then he changes. He goes from speaking this prophecy about the Messiah to the people, and he's holding his little son, his eight-day-old son, in his hands. And as I read this, I think he probably drew that eight-year-old son or eight-day-old son up close. And now he's speaking the tenderness of a father who is holding this baby that he had waited 60, 70, 80 years for the hope of this promise. And he says, and you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you, because you will prepare the way for the Lord, and you will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. And then he says these words. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide us into a path of peace. I think what Zachariah was doing at that moment is going, hey, people that are listening, here's the deal. You might have thought my life was hopeless. You might have thought your life was hopeless. But I want you to know this, that we are not hopeless, but we can have hope because the Savior is coming to us. The Savior will give us peace. The Savior will give us the hope. 
In fact, let me give you my definition of hope. And here's what it says. If you're taking notes, this is your only fill in the blank. You've got an easy day today as far as taking notes. But here's what it says. Hope, by definition, is knowing that good things will happen because you trust in God's promises and his love. Let me say that again. Hope is knowing that good things will happen because you can trust in God's promises and his love. And I believe Zachariah is holding this baby and he's talking about his son. But more than that, he's talking about the future of Israel. More than that, Zechariah was prophesying for you and I today to say that when we are going through life and we feel like we don't have hope, we can have hope because we can trust in God's love and we can trust in God's promises. And we are entering this season of Advent and it is a season of hope. It is a season, as, as Stuart said, really a season of new year, new beginnings, because we know that Jesus came for us. But can I be honest with you? When I say you can have hope, that's a lot easier for the preacher to say than for us to live. Because I know there's so many things in life that can be hope drainers. You may be here this year getting Advent, everybody's putting up their Christmas decorations and they're saying Merry Christmas and all the festivities and you don't even want to get the Christmas decorations out of the closet because this is your first Christmas to experience it without the loss of someone you love. And it's like the grief is so dark and heavy. You're not giving up on God. You just can't find the hope and the joy and the peace that everybody's talking about. Or maybe this is not the first Christmas you've spent without somebody. Maybe it's the 20th Christmas you've spent without someone you love. But every year you find yourself going, I just got to force myself to get into it because of that grief. And, and there's this tendency for grief to step into our lives and just, just quench the very hope that Jesus came for. Or, or maybe it's not grief. Maybe it's frustration. Maybe you look at your life going, my life is not what I expected it to be. I didn't expect to be working this same job now that, that I'm in, and I just have just frustration. Maybe, maybe you look around the people around you going, I didn't think I'd be sharing life with these people, and I'm frustrated all the time. Maybe your frustration simply just comes from just going, I go to work every day, and this is what I encounter, and I'm just frustrated. Or, and, and so that frustration can take that very hope and just cover it all up. Maybe it's not frustration. Maybe it's not grief. Maybe it's just anger. You're going, I'm just angry because I wasn't supposed to celebrate Christmas divorced. I, I wasn't supposed to have to try to figure out where the kids are going for Christmas and where the grandkids will be for Christmas because of all this dysfunction in my family. And it just leaves you with just anger inside of you. And so sometimes anger can just take it in the very hope that we want to bring into Christmas. It just covers it up. Or, or sometimes I think this, it's not anger, it's not disappointment, it's not grief. It's what I often call just kind of the funk. You know what the funk is? It's like you're so just like inside, you can't even pinpoint how you're feeling, but you're not feeling at peace. You're not feeling restful. restful. You're just like, I don't know what it is. And I just call it the funk. Sometimes it's just there and you can't pinpoint it, but it's like, it's just taking all the hope. If that's you today, 
And one of those emotions and feelings, or maybe it's something else I didn't describe, but you're going, my peace is not what it should be because something has it. I just want to share one thing with you today. And that's simply, I'm sorry. Here's why I do that today. Because we're in this Christmas season, everybody's putting on their, their glad tidings, and they're putting on their Christmas sweaters and putting out their Christmas decorations. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And they're all feeling it. And you don't want to be the party pooper. You don't even want to go and bah humbug. It's not good. I'm not at peace. I don't have hope. But you're struggling with it so internally that almost the struggle makes it feel even worse than what it even is at sometimes. Because you can't let out how you really feel. But yet the feelings are real. The disappointment is real. The, the, the frustration is real. The grief is real. The funk is real. And I just simply want to say today as your pastor, I am sorry. And here's why I think that's important for you to hear. Because God sent Jesus to be this human flesh to meet us where we are. That I think one of the best things that we can do in the Christmas season is to empathize and meet people where they are. Instead of saying, no, no, this is my Christmas party. This is my gladness. This is my joy. Come on over. Bring your bad news and come change it and come with me. Sometimes I think the most godly thing we can do is like God did with us with Jesus. He sent him to meet us where we are. That we can take the steps and meet people where they are. And so church, this year... May we be the hugs of God. May we be the handshakes, the texts, the phone calls, the invitations that we can meet people where they are in their struggles. But here's the good news is that when we meet people we are, we don't have to hide our hope. We still get to share our hope. We still get to be the hands and feet of people and uh, the hands and feet of Jesus and say, in your sadness, in your disappointment, in your frustration, I empathize and I come with you, but God still has hope. You see, sometimes we think disappointment and hope can't go together. We think they're like this. Here's my hope. Here's my disappointment. Bam. And they, they just don't go together. Here's my grief and here's my hope. They don't go together. Here's my frustration. Here's my hope. They don't go together. But here's what I believe. They can actually go together. You can have a season of life that you experience grief and hope at the same time. You can have a season of life that you can experience frustration and grief. I'm sorry, frustration and hope at the same time. Because the hope that God brings us through Jesus is based on not my circumstances. That's when it does this. But the hope that God brings us through his son Jesus is based on his promises and his love. And so this year, may we embrace those around us that may be struggling with hope, but may we be a life and a love that still gives them the hope of God. That would be the best Christmas present that we could give anybody that would be the thing that will allow them to breathe the very air that God gives us to breathe every day of our life. Hope can go with all things. And so this Christmas, let's keep it simple. This Christmas, let's not overcomplicate everything. This Christmas, maybe the simplicity is simply just the arms around somebody to give them the hope of Jesus. This Christmas, may we have a simple Christmas as we celebrate all the festivities that come with Christmas.
may we have hope of the promises and the love that God brings us through Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for hope. And I don't even understand it all the time. Um, it, it doesn't really seem to mix with everything that we have, but yet your hope trumps and goes with all things. And so this Christmas, may we not just know your hope, may we experience your hope. And Jesus, more than just experience your hope, may we be a giver of your hope to those around us. And we will step into the simplicity of your story, Jesus. Not the story of a birth of a baby, but the story of our Savior. That we will step into the simplicity of it and we will celebrate with you. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.